Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You are listening to Killer. This is case number 17, The Golden State Killer, The East Area Rapist, Part 1. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. Concerned about human life, um, he enjoys the terror. Uh, he enjoys uh, inflicting that type of a, an emotional uh, type pain on people. During that time frame, everybody was in fear. We had people sleeping with shotguns. We had people uh, purchasing dogs. People were concerned, um, and they had a right to be. This guy was terrorizing the community. He's a extremely. Uh, prolific offender and I think that all of the all of his offenses um, did have a bit of a, a ripple effect throughout um, when you look at uh, a number of the uh, sexual assaults uh, that occurred here in Sacramento County uh, that takes a great toll on the families uh, that were involved in that you had a number of them that were couples uh, so here you have uh, essentially um, you know somebody's wife being raped in their home while their husband 
uh, is home and unable to do anything about it. Uh, that's very terrorizing. Uh, that can only be described to me uh, as somebody who's wanting to develop that terror and, and create that type of fear. If you lived in Sacramento during that time frame, you have a story of what happened and where you were and what was going on. Everybody knows about East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer here in Sacramento. I didn't hear him come in. I didn't hear anything. And all of a sudden, there was someone sitting in my door, the bedroom door. And I looked up and I thought it was my dad at first, you know, because he, you know, he drives weird hours and he might have come in early because it was early in the morning. And nope, it wasn't my dad. So um, he came in, he had a ski mask on and jumped on the bed and had a knife. And I don't, I don't exactly remember what he said, but something to the effect of, you know, don't scream, don't, you know, whatever. And tied my hands behind my back. He, he, he put a cut over my eye, over my eye, but I didn't even realize that I had been cut. And um, I guess part of what he said is that, you know, I don't, even, I don't know what he said. I just remember feeling extremely threatened. After it was all over and done with, he went through the stuff in the room, took money out of my purse, took um, some coin books and stuff that I had, and took a piece of jewelry. I don't, it, it, it was just something that I had just gotten. I don't even know what it was. Um, and I laid in the bed for, it seemed like forever, forever. Because I'd never heard, that I was waiting for the door to close and I never heard the door close. So I was afraid to get up to, you know, to see. And finally I said, okay, this, this is do or die. I woke up with a hand over my mouth and I rolled out of bed. I just swung my arm. I said, what are you doing? It was going down the hall and it was just hitting me. And, um, and then I just pretended that he knocked me out so he quit hitting me. And then I sock stuffed in my mouth, blindfolded, gagged, hands tied, legs tied, and then you know, pulled me up like this because I was on my stomach and put me back in bed and said, if you move, I'm going to kill you. So, you know, <laughs> lay there for two hours. And he came in, I don't know, I think five different times or something like that over the course of the night and raped me. And while you're laying there thinking you're going to die, you just are pretty sure that, you know, I mean, I remember just kind of being in shock. I'm just laying there on my stomach shivering because I had a fever. And you know how you get the chills and you shake? And, and uh, so, um, you know, finally, after, I mean, our best guess is two hours. It went on a long time. At about 4.30 in the morning, I had heard a car drive away. And I started counting to 60 because I didn't have any concept of time. So I counted to 60 30 times. And I figured then a half hour would have gone by with no noise in the house. And I got up and didn't know if he was there. February 28th, 1977. This is the first profile of the East Area Rapist that was gathered. White male adult, 18 to 22, 5 foot 9, or 10, 
165, with dark or dirty blonde hair. Not married at this time. Unable to maintain any normal heterosexual relationship with a female. As a consequence, he is capable of harboring deeply rooted feelings of inadequacy, which manifest themselves in the rape crimes. It is through the crime of rape that he is finally able to establish dominance over the female, asserting his masculinity and perhaps repaying all of womanhood for him, causing him such anxiety. As a result of his sexual inadequacies, he would be constantly combating a fear that he will become involved in some sort of homosexual encounter. Basically a loner and avoids relationships. Unknown whether he attempts to prove his manhood to his male peers. If there is any past involvement with the authorities, it would probably be in the area of indecent exposure or peeping Tom. The time he entered the house without his pants on would indicate voyeurism. Probably the youngest male member of his family. Although he may have an older brother in the service, we feel that he probably has an older sister and an unusually domineering mother. Probably a total lack of any assertive male influence in his early years. Doubt if he has any prolonged exposure to military service. He may have attempted to enter the service and was turned down, or did not make it through basic training. Probably comes from a middle-class family environment. This is mainly based on his apparent change of attire, including shoes and various shapes and colored masks. The basic theory is that an individual in a lower income bracket would have the tendency to wear the same clothing. Probably not addicted to any hard drugs, but maybe a pill popper. Doesn't smoke or drink. He is probably pouring the beer down the drain because no one has mentioned smelling it on his breath. Probably a strong religious tie inherent in his upbringing, but don't feel you should dwell on this aspect. Possible that he lives in the area of Rancho Cordova, or used to, and just moved to the east area of the county. He knows the area. An increasing aggressiveness in the suspect's degree of method of attack is indicative of what we term decompensation. He is a very dangerous individual who would kill himself and any law enforcement officer or person attempting to take him into custody. Any field interrogation of the subject should be approached with knowledge of certain psychological thought patterns prevailing the paranoid schizophrenic. The paranoid will be both calm and calculating during the planning phase. Thus, any attempts towards detention or solicitation of information during this stage will only serve to stimulate the excitation. As a result, he could prove most cunning and confident in his replies while simultaneously demanding that he know the reason for his detention. The schizophrenic must have information to perpetrate his fantasy, thereby allowing him to remain intact during the charade. Conversely, if the information is denied, then similarly, his fantasy is denied and the onset of non-interrogation would become apparent in the contact. From apparent calmness, the suspect would begin to display erratic behavior. Some agitation and fidgetsness would be the early manifestation as he starts to realize that he is not controlling the situation. From that point, he would rapidly deteriorate in front of the officers. With this information, it is suggested that initial contact, if the suspect is found serene, be viewed as stated. The officers should then delay the individual while simultaneously withholding as much information from him as possible. This will cause the suspect's inherent schizophrenic tendencies to begin working against him. With no information to work on, and without the officer's active participation, the suspect will not be able to perpetrate his fantasy. This results in increasing amounts of frustration serving to exaggerate those pre-existing doubts and anxieties, which are a fundamental makeup of the paranoid schizophrenic. 
When he has a well-developed plan, he is able to be effectively meticulous in his actions. If the plan goes awry, his actions demonstrate more anxiety and frustration. He seems frightened to touch breasts and is preoccupied with masturbation. I think he has thoughts of killing probably associated with thoughts he has had of killing his mother to resolve his home situation. He overcomes this fear of killing someone by, trying, by tying them up and raping them. Attack number one. June 18, 1976, Rancho Cordova, California. Rancho Cordova is situated about 15 miles east of Sacramento. Tap, 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 tap. The 23-year-old woman living in the home located on Paseo Drive woke up from the tapping sound. There was a man standing in her bedroom doorway, watching her. He turned the light on, and she noticed his dark t-shirt, homemade ski mask with only two holes cut out for the eyes, and gloves. He was not wearing anything from the waist down. As she continued to try to shake the grogginess from sleep, she realized this man was standing in her doorway tapping a knife against the doorframe, which is what woke her. Suddenly, he sprinted across the room, diving on top of her. She tried to cover herself with the blankets on the bed and hide, but he was far too strong and ripped the blankets from her body and put the knife to her head. Through what would become his trademark of clenched teeth, the intruder said, If you make any sound or move in any way, I will stick you with this knife. I want to fuck you. He pointed his knife at her nightgown and growled, Take it off. As she was removing her clothes, he paced back and forth impatiently. Noticing that she was on her period and had a tampon, he ordered her to remove the tampon and roll into her stomach. He crossed her arms behind her back and bound her hands together with a robe that was pre-cut. Next, he rummaged about the room and came back with a cloth belt, which he used to bound her wrist again. The intruder raped the woman without saying a word. He used the bed sheets to clean himself off and then asked her, Do you have any money? As soon as she would attempt to answer, he would interrupt, Shut up! He left for a moment and returned with her hair dryer, which he used to bound her ankles. He found her slip on the floor and used it to gag her. The woman could hear him rummaging through the house as she lay about, bound and gagged, and fearing for her life. The rapist returned, Don't make a move while I'm here, I'll kill you. He left again. She could hear him as he rummaged through drawers in the kitchen. She could hear him talking to himself, which she thought at the time was actually two people in the room. She noticed it had been quite quiet for a while, so she began working to loosen her bindings from her feet and hobbled down the hallway to discover the back door was open. She slammed it shut with her feet, but the deadbolt was engaged and it would not shut. She ran to the phone in the kitchen and knocked the receiver off the wall. However, the dial was too high for her to reach with her bindings still on her wrists. So she ran to her father's room and knocked the receiver off the cradle and dialed with her numb fingers. Let's take a moment to discuss the aftermath of the attack, including the description of the perpetrator, as well as some of the evidence in investigators were able to track down. The intruder was described as wearing a light-colored, dirty or gray ski mask with a seam down the front. It had cutouts only for the eyes and was tight-fitting. He wore a black t-shirt, which was tight-fitting. He was described as being 5'9 and roughly 160 pounds. He may have dark hair since his body hair appeared to be dark colored. He was described as having an unusually small penis. Finally, he was estimated at 20 to 25 years old. Investigators noticed that a block of wood and a birdbath were moved and placed under the phone line that runs to the telephone pole near the back fence. The assailant appeared to have attempted to cut the lines but was not successful. There are pry marks around the wood of the door jamb on the back patio. The victim's purse was emptied out and scattered around the lawn. 
Inside the home, drawers were open, items were strewn about everywhere. The house had been ransacked. Nothing of value had been stolen from the home. Inside the hall bathroom, two towels were found balled up, and there was Johnson's baby oil on the counter. It appeared that he lubricated himself prior to tapping his knife in the doorway to wake the victim. The assailant also brought two pieces of pre-cut rope along with him to use as bindings. The victim recalls having been stalked for a few weeks prior to the attack. She states that in the beginning of May she noticed an older, dark-colored American car, make and model were unknown, had been driving through her neighborhood. Every time the car drove past while she was outside, and when she tried to make eye contact with the driver, he would look the other way. The car stopped patrolling the neighborhood, and then she began to receive hang-up phone calls. The victim was a 23-year-old insurance adjuster, and she was living with her father, a retired U.S. Army Air Force serviceman, at the residence. Her father was in Boston due to a death in the family, and he was set to return a few days after the victim was attacked. Due to the lack of ability for the perpetrator to cut the phone lines, investigators initially assumed it was a neighborhood kid who had not done this before. I just wanted to take a little pause here real quick and and talk about, first of all, what we just described, but also something that I read somewhere else, and I had always been thinking this in the back of my mind. So my beginning fascination with true crime probably actually is rooted in horror movies, and my favorite movie was Halloween, that was like one of the first scary movies I'd ever seen as a kid, and someone said... This dude is the real-life Michael Myers. And, like, their sidebar on their webpage. And I thought to myself for a minute, and I'd been thinking this the whole time, these attacks run right up through when that movie came out. Now, the movie is supposedly inspired by, like, Psycho and stuff like that, but I couldn't help but draw the parallels myself many times while reading this, that if Halloween was a factual, real movie this would be it. And this is scary as hell. And the original working title for that movie was The Babysitter Murders, which fits this just a little bit better, you know, if you really go back and think about it. So I found that to be a little interesting parallel to draw. Um, Let's talk about the first attack. So, you know, you'll recall last week we did the Visalia Ransacker series, and then, you know, he goes kind of quiet at the end of 1975, you know, uh, and then all of a sudden, here we are, six months later, 1976, June 18th. He'd been doing some prowling work prior to this, so he'd been active again, and this time he's escalating. Now we're into breaking in with people in the home and raping them. So this guy was, I mean, he was doing crazy stuff to begin with at the other places, you know, where he would like masturbate at the scene and, you know do things with women's underwear and all that stuff in the Visalia Ransacker series. But then suddenly he's back and this time he's, he's moved on to, to rape, but the ransacking is still a huge part of the MO here. Yeah. And some of the things that I found interesting is, is we, even as we talked about his profile, it it sounded like he took the time to make a, a homemade ski mask. I mean, who does that and why? It, it stuck out to me, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say, based on a lot of that profile, he's all about self-preservation. And one thing that you could do to preserve yourself is make your own clothes. 
Now, I don't know that he went out and knitted an entire mask himself or anything, but I'm thinking what he did was take masks and alter them so that they weren't the same as they were at the store. It'd be very hard to, you know, be like, oh, yeah, I've seen that one before because this one's right. a little bit different. So I think that's part of it is that way he's not able to be traced to like a certain place. Like, oh, yeah, I've seen like, you know, Joe's Home Improvement sells that mask and, you know, okay, well, who bought that, you know, and trace it back that way. This guy's really, really smart when it comes down to, to, staging evidence and or making a lack of evidence available for investigators. Yeah. But, but that was something that one of the witnesses or victims caught was that there was a seam down the middle, which, you know, obviously to them that, that, that even seemed in the heat of the moment and maybe even during the attack or before the attack occurred, what they observed to something to them to be, you know, kind of strange, which was interesting for sure. Yeah. What do you make of the, the ransacking while the person is tied up and can hear it going on while they're bound and blindfolded in another room. I don't know. I mean, we know, we know the incidents are, are tied together. And then, you know, he started out as the, the ransacker and was tearing people's places up. I mean, he's continued that behavior. It's kind of weird that he still continues that behavior, even with the incidents escalating to rape and, you know, binding them and holding them against their will, that he's still doing that part of it. If he's looking for artifacts, I, I don't know. It's kind of weird. But from the victim's standpoint, you know, they they have to be scared shitless because they hear this guy doing stuff in the background and they have no idea if they're bound and bi even blindfolded or whatever. They don't know what's going on or what's coming next. So it's complete terror at that point. Right, and that's what that's kind of where I was going to go. Um, I think that you, you hit on two things. One, I think he was looking for souvenirs because he takes random weird things from homes all the time, just strange things that are of little value. He'll, he will take some money here and there, but he just takes little things of no value a lot. And then also I think it's the terror aspect because later you'll hear him being described as slamming drawers shut and stuff like that. And I know if I had all my senses were taken away except for hearing, you know? And so he blindfolds you, he ties you up so you can't feel anything, you're just stuck, your hands are numb from the bindings. The only thing you can do is basically smell, taste, and hear. Um, you know, you're just sitting there, and the fear would just take over. I mean, could you imagine? Like, the my heart would be pumping so hard that I don't know if I could even hear anything to begin with. Let alone, you know, and then you're blindfolded, so you can't see what's going on. And then, you know, he leaves, and you think maybe he's gone. And then all of a sudden, you just hear the slamming noises going on, and things are just being strewn about your home, and he's just making a mess of it. The other interesting thing here is he shows up with bindings, so he's prepared. You know, he knows what's going on. He comes into that home ready to go. You know, he's he doesn't screw around. Yeah, he's definitely he's definitely more prepared, especially when it comes to the 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 point where he's actually tying up a victim and, and holding them hostage in their own home, essentially. Did you have any additional thoughts on the the one comment that was made where he possibly had an unusually domineering, you know, female side to his life, whether it was an older sister or maybe his mom that drove him to act like this towards other women? Yeah, I mean a lot of times you'll see that from these kind of people, they'll have some influence in their upbringing that kind of coerces them into this kind of behavior later in life. I don't know. I, to me, like the way that he behaves during these 
acts and knowing the entire series like I do, I feel like he he was in some form or fashion in his life he felt extremely inadequate towards women, whether it was him having an unusually small penis or whether his mother was just overbearing on him and he hated her and you know was trying to basically like take it out on women in general or what but to me it seems like that's where this comes from you know it comes from some kind of inadequate feeling cuz he feels like he needs to dominate these people like he has to he, he he gets off on the thrill of scouting out everything which they even say here like that's actually like the part that he you know likes the most is planning prowling figuring out what he's going to do the actual rape part really isn't the climax of it all. It's before that, like when he's getting ready to break in, you know, and figure out like how many people are in the home. When are they home? Finding out their patterns. How can I get out of here? What's my escape plan? You know, those kinds of things. So yeah, I find that fascinating. But yeah, I, I would say it's it's got to be some kind of crazy disdain toward a female figure in his life and or his own feelings of extreme inadequacy. Yeah, I, th I think it's a combination of everything that we've discussed at this point, even from the first the first part when we were talking about the ransacker. You know, people, eyewitnesses accounts said he was, you know, had a unusually round face, high-pitched voice. Now we're learning other things about him that it, it all fits into the uh, inadequacy equation, you know, from his side. That's a great point. I didn't really put that together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems like it, it's built it's built up to this point, you know, we're, we're learning more about him as, as things go along and, you know, it, it all obviously ties together. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, let's move on to the second attack here. Um, we've got a lot to cover. July 17th, 1976, a 15 year old female and her 16 year old sister were home alone. Their parents had left them home while they were out of town on a church trip. The girls decided it was time for bed around 10 PM after they finished watching television. They checked all the locks on the doors and headed to bed. Around 2 a.m., the 15-year-old woke to a hand covering her mouth. She screamed. The man growled through clenched teeth, Shut up! I have a knife, and if you don't shut up, I can kill you. The victim, still trying to shake her sleepiness, rolled off the bed, bumping into the man's leg. She got up and tried to escape. She screamed for her sister, but he grabbed her and struck her in the back of the head several times, very hard. The victim pretended to be unconscious, but the man wasn't buying it and told her, Shut up! I've already tied up your sister. She did not respond, still pretending to be knocked out, not believing her act. Get your hands behind your back, he hissed. He tied the 15-year-old victim's hands behind her back very tightly. Then he leaned over the victim and growled into her ear. You do everything that I want, and I will fill my bag and leave. He then gagged the victim by shoving a sock in her mouth and tied a towel around her head to hold the gag in place. Next, he tied her feet together tightly. The victim was still on the floor in the hall, so he grabbed her by her stomach and pulled her back into the room and tossed her onto her bed. If you move or make the bed twinge, I will kill you. He left the bedroom and began ransacking the house. He was loud, slamming drawers closed. The assailant came back into the room to check on her and then left to continue ransacking. He came back again. This time he tied a towel around her head in order to blindfold her. She estimates that around 15 minutes he was gone until he returned and flipped the light on. The bed bounced as the intruder was now in bed with her. Play with it. Play with it, he said, as he put his now lubricated penis into her numb and bound hands. Have you ever fucked before? He whispered into her ear through clenched teeth. She shook her head no. 
He untied her feet, pulled down her panties, and raped her for what she estimated was two minutes. He then tied her ankles again. Where's the money? He demanded. She indicated by head shake that it was in her drawer. He took the drawers and dumped the contents onto the floor. He left the room and went to the sister's room and began ransacking her room as well. A few moments later, he returned standing over the victim. I knew when I saw you at the junior prom I had to fuck you. The victim did not believe him. She had a picture on her dresser with her boyfriend's name on it and assumes that he had seen that picture. He was on top of her again. Play with it, he ordered. As she complied, he stated, I'm in love with it. I'm in love with your fucking body. After a few minutes of this, he repositioned himself and raped her a second time. He left the room and began ransacking again. He returned again and raped her again. After he finished, he wiped between her legs with the sheet. Standing over her again, he asked, Where's the doctor's drugs? I looked in the refrigerator and they're not there. She shook her head as if she didn't know. The man then breathed out heavily a few times, indicating he was angry. At least the victim felt he was angry at her for not knowing. He then left the room. It was silent for around three minutes. No rummaging. No man storming through the house. She got the towel off of her head and saw that it was now 4.30 a.m. She hobbled to her sister's bedroom, where her sister was able to loosen her hands enough to get free. She cut the bindings off the victim, and then they called the police. The 16-year-old sister told authorities that she was not molested. She was woken up by a man sitting on her back, pointing a knife into her back of her neck. He warned her, if you make a sound, I'll stick this right through you and kill you. He ripped her phone out of the wall, binded her tightly with string. She struggled a few times, but he struck her several times and threatened to kill her. He told her he would be there for about 30 minutes to rob them, and then he left the room. The investigators arrived on the scene and were able to notice several footprints in the yard near the 16-year-old sister's room. They infer that he had been watching the older sister for some time. He was able to get into the house by prying open the sliding glass door. That being said, he had to pass the 15-year-old's bedroom to go tie up the 16-year-old first, which indicated that he planned this attack. This means he had intended to tie up the 16-year-old in order to rape the 15-year-old. No footprints were observed outside the victim's bedroom, indicating that he was familiar with the household and was confident she'd be in bed or somehow already knew she was in bed. There were also no footprints outside of the master bedroom, indicating that he knew the parents were not home. They also believe he stalked this house for some time if he knew about the two sisters being alone and coming prepared with his own bindings. It is also believed that he discovered their father was a doctor based on his findings during his ransacking of the home. Two empty Coors beer cans were discovered in the kitchen. Both girls said they did not belong to the residence, but neither reported smelling beer on his breath. He may have relaxed and drank them after he was finished. Investigators also found scuff marks on the back fence, which indicates that he jumped the fence on his way out. The 16-year-old saw the assailant wearing a brown ski mask with only holes cut out for the eyes. It covered his whole head. He was also wearing a multicolored stocking cap over his mask. Investigators found that the cap he was wearing on top of his full mask was from the victim's sister. It was found moved from her closet to a drawer. He had also taken a pair of matching mittens and used them while raping her sister. Both girls reported seeing him wearing his pants when he entered the home. His shoes were described as hiking boots or waffle stompers. He wore a printed shirt. The victim felt he was between 18 and 20 years old. Neither sister reported he was wearing gloves, however, no fingerprints were found. This attack occurs at another single-story home in 
basically a similar type of development as the first attack. But this time he stayed for a lot longer. He was there for two and a half hours. I can't imagine. I mean, could you imagine being at home like this and being bound and listening to this dude for two and a half hours and then being the sister who's being, you know, assaulted the entire time? No, I can't. Two and a half hours would have literally seemed like an eternity. I I can't imagine what just being bound and, and, you know, and sounded like for a long, long period of time, blindfolded as well, not knowing what's going on for two and a half hours at that time of night is unbelievable. Yeah, and, uh, you know, like, my heart would have been beating so hard, I would have had a heart attack, I think. I don't think I would have made it. (laughs) I mean, seriously, these girls are so brave. I can't believe that they lasted as long as they, you know, like, I I would have passed out or something. I don't think I could have made it. Yeah. I mean, during the two and a half hours with, you know, in between the attacks, and then, you know, he's going back and forth between the rape and the ransack, they probably, if there was any relief to be had whatsoever, it was when... He said the rape lasted two minutes, then he went and ransacked, and then came back. They at least knew when he was out rummaging around in the house, you know. I'm sure there was no sense of relief whatsoever, but at least they knew, probably sitting there thinking, when's he coming back? Because he, he's, he has somewhat of a pattern. Yeah, exactly. The one other thing I found interesting in this attack is that he escalates the infliction of terror on this uh, pair this time by trying to make her think that he knows who she is and that he's been watching her and that he saw her at the junior prom. But the victim had a picture of herself and her boyfriend at the junior prom, and that's how he was able to figure that out. They also think the same thing with the the statements about the drugs and her dad being a doctor was that he found stuff while he was rummaging through the house, and that's what led him to make the statements that he makes. And so you're seeing a pattern now where he's starting to be very manipulative during the attacks. Right. It's almost as if he's profiling the victim as the attack is happening. He, he must have found something that indicated that their father was a doctor, you know, while he was rummaging through stuff and, and threw that statement out, whether he was actually after the drugs or not. It was like, I know you, I know your family. It, it, it just all lends to the terror aspect. It does. And the one thing that investigators found interesting about the summary of events that had happened was when one of the victims said that the attacker mentioned, I checked the refrigerator for the drugs. And they found that interesting because not a lot of people knew that drugs were refrigerated, you know? And so they thought someone, he has to have some type of knowledge about how these drugs are kept or stored. So either he is a drug addict or he's in the medical field somehow or has ties to the medical field. So they started kind of going down that that avenue for a minute after they, you know, heard some of the accounts of this attack. Very cold, very calculated, and I don't know what else to say. He's very well prepared and one thing we didn't mention there in our discussion points was he, you know, he's he's bringing beer, baby lotion and rope along with him. So yeah, he's bringing all his tools along, and he's also, you know, based on the description of from the second sister that was bound up but not attacked, he's, for whatever reason, using some of her clothes during the time, putting a hat on over top of his ski mask and gloves and whatnot. It's just very, very strange. Yeah, and that, and that's a good point, too, that I didn't touch on there was um, he brought enough rope to bind two victims, so he expected only two people in that house. He was ready for two people to be there. So he knew enough 
that he knew the parents were gone. He knew there were the two girls were in there. And he only was reported as, well, from what they could gather from the evidence from the scene was staring into the the older daughter's room, but he was after the youngest daughter for whatever reason. Like, he had singled her out. Yeah, it, it would be interesting to know why he only raped and attacked the one daughter, or the one sister, while the other one was tied up in the other room. You would think that this is a, obviously, once he has them bound up, this is a crime of opportunity, so I'm not sure why he decided to only attack the, the younger of the two sisters and not both of them. He had the opportunity to do that the whole time. He was there almost three hours. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he clearly targeted the one. Like, for whatever reason, she must have fit his type or whatever thing that he decided at the time was the criteria for the reason he was there and what he was going to do. So we'll move on to attack number three here. It was the early morning of August 29th, 1976. A 12-year-old was awakened by the sounds of wind chimes clanging outside of her bedroom window at the head of her bed. Upon further inspection, she noticed what was a man wearing a tight-fitting dark ski mask with holes cut out for the eyes. He was attempting to pry loose the screen. They made eye contact with each other, while the figure in the window just stared at the girl. After a long pause, the figure slowly made his way out of sight. The daughter ran to her mother's room and told her what she had seen. The father was at work, and he left the home around 10.30 p.m. the night before, August 28th. He had just switched to the night shift. After explaining what she had seen, the mother thought that she was just having a bad dream and went to the living room and looked out their back sliding glass door. Nothing was there. The mother went into the bedroom of her eldest daughter, aged 15, and told her about what had happened. The daughter seemed uninterested and told them to call police before going back to sleep. The mother and 12-year-old headed back to the 12-year-old's bedroom. Upon entering the room, the man was back at the window, prying at the window. The intruder disappeared again once he was witnessed. Suddenly, the mother realized her daughter was not lying, and they raced back to the kitchen to call for police. The pair stood in the kitchen, listening to the phone ring out to the operator, when they heard a loud crash of the wind chimes in the curtain rod. Before they knew it, the masked man stood beside them. Once inside, they noticed the man was wearing a brown t-shirt, a tight-fitting nylon mask, and slits cut out for only the eyes. He was wearing a type of hiking boot and was naked from the waist down. He wore a wide, shiny belt. He held a small two-inch barrel revolver in his left hand and a club in his right hand. He was also wearing tight-fitting black gloves. The man was lean, around 5'9". He growled at the pair, freeze or I'll kill you. Hang up the phone now. The mother hung up the phone before she was able to reach the operator. Who else is in the house, he demanded. The 12-year-old responded that her sister was in the house. He approached the mother, standing closer. The mother grabbed his gun, and he began beating her over the head with his club. She continued to struggle while being bludgeoned. Finally, she was subdued. The daughter had been screaming during the clubbing, and she was extremely terrified. Shut up, he commanded the child. The mother was still conscious. Although she was lying on the floor, he ordered them to the living room to sit down on the couch. The mother pleaded with him, but he wasn't having any of it. He pulled a cut towel from his belt and said, I only want your money. He grabbed the mother's arms and put them behind her back in order to bind her. She fought back and broke free from him, and she was able to run towards the front door. He grabbed her and began to club her on the head repeatedly, but she was able to get the door open and made it outside. The intruder followed her, and the 12-year-old was not far behind. The mother screamed for help as she sprinted across the front lawn to her neighbor's house. The masked intruder bolted across the street while the daughter followed her mother. The 15-year-old being in the home heard the commotion. 
She popped her screen out of her window and jumped down. She hopped the fence behind her room and saw her mother and sister darting across the street, so she followed them. The neighbor had heard the noise and aided the trio as they came into their house. A different neighbor across the street witnessed four people run from that house, to which they saw the family head to a neighbor's house, but a man left and hid behind some bushes at a neighboring home. She saw him crouch down for a few minutes and then just casually walk away. As he was walking away, she noticed that he was naked from the waist down. Sheriff deputies arrived at 3.28 a.m. The mother had fallen into unconsciousness briefly at the neighbor's house and was now awake again. She was removed to the hospital. Inside the victim's house, deputies discovered blood in the entryway, droplets, smears on the wall and on the interior of the front door, a picture frame and its glass was shattered on the floor. Blood was on the kitchen floor, the phone was ripped out of the wall, and the bindings he intended to use were lying about. A towel described as off-white was on the family room floor, both ends tied together to form a circle. It did not belong to the house. A 2-inch by 12-inch swath of towel, torn or cut to its length, was on the couch cushions. A black shoelace was on the arm of the chair, another on the floor nearby. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Examination of the bedroom window through which the intruder had entered showed that the drapery rod was detached on one end and the chimes had fallen. The window was wide open and the screen was removed. In the yard underneath the window, a wooden lawn chair had been set up by the intruder in order for him to stand up upon to pry the screen. A search of the neighborhood uncovered no pair of pants left anywhere. Deputies cruising the neighborhood came across no suspect, fully dressed or otherwise. From the description, it is clear that this time the rapist who had attacked 20, the 23-year-old victim nearby and the 15-year-old in Del Deo, the location of this home, despite being on a different street, was only two yards away from the first victim's house on Paseo Drive. Interview with the mother confirmed that the attacker was not a very big man, and in her estimation, he was not very strong. She felt that if he had not had the club and gun, she could have taken him. The mother was 41 years old. She would require numerous stitches in her scalp. She had many bruises both on her head, face, arm, and sternum. She would eventually recover. In subsequent interviews, the father stated that he began working nights only two days before 
He wondered whether the attacker knew that his wife and daughters were there without him now. They only had one car. This attack is interesting, obviously, because it's a failed attack. So, you know, this is new. Um, he shows up. You know, he had been obviously scouting out the the home. And, you know, he enters. But he makes that statement, who else is in the home? Almost as if he didn't realize that there was more, either an additional child or what. So he comes in expecting two people. And he had enough bindings for two people. But there's a third one there. And so you see he starts to get a bit agitated as soon as things aren't going his way. To me, as prepared as he was for the first two attacks, and then then looking at this third attack, I, I'm thinking he wasn't expecting their mom to be there. I think he was only expecting the two girls to be there. He knew that the father was gone at work, but you know, for whatever reason, he, he must have thought that the, their mother was going to be gone as well. Yeah, and, you know, it's definitely a telling sign by how many bindings he brought with him. You know, he brought enough for two people, but, you know, obviously there's a third here, and he asks the question, you know, who else is here? So he's clearly not ready for somebody being there, some extra person in that home, whether it's one of the daughters or it's the mother. Uh, what else is interesting is that he he attacks when when the father's gone, and he just switched his his job to night shift, like, within a couple days. So... The fact that he attacked at night like that, right away, like, was he in the house before? I think, I don't have it here in front of me, but I want to say, and I could be a little bit wrong, so I apologize if I am, but I feel like the father was questioning whether or not the intruder had been in the house before, you know, scouting the house and found a letter or something from his work that stated his new shift and his new hours. If I, I'm just going off of memory here. I, I feel like this is the attack where, you know, he... He's assuming that that's how the, the prowler knew what was going on was because he was in the house before and found his his letter or whatever where it had written down his new work hours. Right. I'm assuming that that, that, that almost has to be the case. If he was following their father to work, you know, he's not going to know just by observation and following him around. He's going to know where he works. He's going to know, you know, what time he leaves the house and comes back from work if he followed him to his you know, to where that guy worked, but he's not going to know the shift change unless he was actually in the house and found some kind of evidence of that. Yeah. And the only other thing I can think of is that there is only one car and the car's gone. So all he had to do was look in the garage. If he was in the garage or was able to peek in the garage, I don't know if they had windows or anything where he could see in there or if the garage door was open or I'm not sure. Uh, but you know, that could be another tell where he's like, okay, a car's gone. Some the adults are gone right now. And maybe that's what he was expecting. Maybe he was expecting both people were gone, the mother and father. They'd went out for the night or something to go do whatever and was expecting just the two kids right. in the home. That's a good point. Maybe he didn't even know that the father had, had switched shifts. Maybe that was just an odd coincidence. And he was just looking for the car. And that, that makes more sense to me, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it could be as simple as that. It's always hard to tell with these things because this guy is so prepared that he probably was in that house before anything happened. And that... You know, he, he may have been doing a little recon work during the day and noticed that, you know, the, the shift change had happened, or he just knew this guy had his, his car and there was only one family car and the car was gone. So he assumed both adults are gone or, you know, whatever. What else is interesting is this is really close to the first attack. I believe it's just a couple houses over. And the other interesting thing is that he left the scene without any pants. 
and he was witnessed. Several people saw him walking around butt naked. Yeah, and I mean, he left the scene without the pants, but I think he showed up without them on as well. I mean, he showed up and all he had on was boots and a shiny belt is what it said, right? Yeah, yeah. He had on a belt and, and boots and no pants. And the, the one thing, too, that uh, investigators were questioning was, how did he get himself in through the window with all the broken glass and not cut his nether regions on his way through that window? Well, that must be uh, speak a little bit of truth to the eyewitness portrayal of him having a small penis. You know, <laughs> if he wasn't swinging in the wind, he's not going to catch anything on any glass. Yeah, I guess what uh, more specifically what they're wondering is, so, you know, the sequence where the daughter sees him, he disappears, the mother sees him, he disappears, and then he comes through the window. They say that window is up high. It's a bit higher than usual. So in order to get through that window, like, you would almost have to straddle over the wall and get in. But the other theory that they had was that he grabbed onto the gutter above and swung himself through. And that's how he got in there without doing any damage to himself. But I just found that interesting. Uh, and I started questioning that as well. I'm like, wow, okay, so that, that guy, he clearly was able to get in through that window somehow without actually right. hurting himself. There, there was no, didn't sound like there was any evidence gathered of it. He used something to throw over the windowsill to, you know, to protect himself from getting cut going through. But there was, as we read through that, that part of the attack, though, there was there was blood noticed in several locations. My assumption was it was from the from the mother getting beat on. That's what yeah, I'm I don't assuming think it too. was actually from him. Yeah, I mean, it is hard to tell, um, but it, I don't know. I, I don't have it in front of me, and I don't recall ever reading anything about if they tested that blood and found out whose blood that was, or if they found out it wasn't the mother's. They may have. I just might have missed that or, or forget what, what exactly happened. But, yeah... It, that's one interesting piece there, too, is, you know, they find all that blood around the house, but obviously they can't really do much with it, especially back then. I mean, they don't have, they don't have DNA sure. at this time. And I think the, the only thing from my side really is with him showing up with no pants and leaving with no pants, he had to have a, a vehicle parked close by. He's not just going to be wandering around the neighborhood aimlessly with, you know, no clothes on. Obviously, he has to have a car or something parked close by. I mean, even if it, yeah, I could see it with it being maybe in a block or two, but it's not far away. He's not going to, you know, wander around naked outside for a long period of time because obviously people are going to start calling the cops and he's one, you know, we know he's going to flee as fast as he possibly can and just get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of times with his attacks, he's got a very planned, detailed escape strategy. And if he has a car, it's definitely far away from the actual house, a few blocks. But... What's fascinating is when he shows up without any pants on and then he gets into his car and takes off. Like, do you think he spends the time putting pants on? Do you think he had his pants in the car to begin with and then just puts them back on in the car? Or do you think he's just like, F this and just drives away? From what we know of this guy to this point and how he flees a scene and just gets out of there as quick as he possibly can, you know, despite what the route is, I have a feeling he jumped in his car and just took off. I don't think he's going to take the time to put pants on. He may have drove, driven somewhere and stopped and then slid him on quick, but... That's what I'm thinking because, you know, he's all about self-preservation. And if he gets stopped by the police for whatever reason, and he has no pants on, and then they just said, well, there was this dude at my house and he had no pants on. Boom, right there, you're done. You know, so I'm wondering if he has to put those pants back on before he starts taking off driving. 
just the way that he is. I would imagine. I mean, if it were me, I'd put my pants on, you know, if I left them in my car or whatever, because his plan probably was, you know, to go in there, induce some terror, rape people, and leave like usual. But he always gives himself that ability to have a, you know, 10-minute head start, if you will. So it's probably enough time for him to get to his car where he needs to be in order to get dressed, get his mask off, get rid of his stuff, put it in the trunk or whatever, and then take off. You know, uh, that's my assumption, right? I mean, I'm obviously making that up myself, but I would imagine that he's got enough time to cover his bases where he can, where he feels like he can give himself a head start enough to be normal, you know, to, to not give off any red flags as he walks away. I, I think your assumption is pretty good because especially, like we said, the attacks are in a very close vicinity. He's not going to go far undressed with beer and baby lotion in the car, right? He he's going to get dressed and he's going right. to try to cover his tracks. Even if he was to get pulled over, he doesn't want to come across as being, you know, mysterious or, or, or anything of that nature. He's wanting to just, you know, get out of there and, you know, not be seen, not be witnessed, especially not pulled over with no clothes on. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. You know, if he knows that the cops are likely starting to get a little eager now, now that he's going, this is the third time he's attacked. And so, you know, they've got to be starting to get a little bit on edge. Maybe they're not fully panicked yet. Maybe they're thinking that's different people still. They're not sure. But then they start investigating the crime scenes and realize, oh, all these things are starting to line up. It's got to be the same person. So he's got to know the police are after him in some capacity and that he cannot give himself away if he gets stopped. Like, he has to be able to be as normal looking and feeling as possible. So I, I can't imagine that he didn't go put those pants back on in his car or wherever he had them. He might not have had them in his car. He might have had them in someone's backyard somewhere and he happened to get to that yard without being witnessed and put his pants back on and then went to his car and took off. You know, he's the master mm-hmm. of staging. Yeah, he thing. most definitely could have had that stuff stashed somewhere. We'll move on to attack number four. On September 4th, 1976, in the city of Carmichael, a 29-year-old female was visiting her parents' home to do some laundry. Her machine had broken down, so she decided that she would just head over there and use their machine instead. The home was a single story in a middle-class neighborhood. She pulled up the driveway and entered through the garage, leaving the garage door open. She had finished the laundry and loaded it into her vehicle parked in the driveway around 11 p.m. She went back and locked up the house and then headed back to her car. As she was about to enter the vehicle, a hand grabbed her shoulder and she was turned around and noticed a man in a ski mask with only slits cut out for the eyes. Before she could even realize what was going on, he punched her right in the face, breaking her nose, where blood poured onto the concrete. She was knocked out and drug into the house. Blood permanently stained the driveway. This attack was more brutal than any of the others before them. He drug the woman into the house and bound her with a rope and towel just like the others. He cut her clothes off with a knife, holding it to her throat. He growled at the woman. If you look at me, I'll slit your throat, he continued. Is anyone expected home? During this attack, he said a lot more about himself. I just need your money and your car. I just want to get to Bakerfield. Continuing on, he told the woman he was in the army and he slept with all the girls in the army and they all loved it. He raped and sodomized her, forced her to have oral sex with him, masturbated, and he even gave her oral sex. He also climaxed in her mouth twice and forced her to swallow. He threatened to kill her if she didn't comply. The description of the intruder was the same, and again, little in the way of evidence that could identify the perpetrator. He also ransacked the house and ate food as usual. 
After he was done with the attack, he dragged her outside of the house and tied her to a post on the back patio. He stole her car and drove it two blocks away. Police found two empty Coors beer cans in the kitchen just like in attack number two. The level of violence and terror had escalated, possibly due to the failure in attack three. It was during this attack police started recognizing the shape of the knots that were used with the shoelaces. They were diamond knots, which tend to be a nautical knot that is very uncommon. Detective Richard Shelby had many thoughts on the perpetrator. Mostly he wondered about his link to the medical field. Several other neighbors in this development reported prowler activity prior to this attack, and one neighbor chased someone off of their yard just a few days prior. This attack is improvised and unplanned, clearly. He just gets this girl in the driveway and knocks her out and then takes her in the house and then starts asking her questions about where, you know, where is everybody who's coming, trying to figure out what's coming, you know, who's coming and going to this house so that he knows if he has time or not. On top of that, this attack is extremely brutal. And I had a hard time finding the details of the attack because people try and shield them sometimes being, you know, careful to the victim. However, I think it's important. I feel like in our culture today, rape is somewhat common, but violent rape is maybe not as common as what I would call rape of two semi-consenting individuals where, you know, someone might be a little forceful and now you're, you know, you know, we're in the Me Too movement era right now where, you know, some of the stuff is questionable and shouldn't happen, but it's not like this, right? This is a different level, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I'm not minimizing rape in any capacity, but what I'm saying is this particular style of the way that this guy is going about his attacks is brutal. It's violent. It is torture. It's terror. It's it's a new level and it's a new low, you know? And so that's why I include these kind of details when we write these things, because I think it's important to know what you're dealing with. It's easy to say rape anymore and it be somewhat glossed over, just like it's kind of easy to gloss over school shootings anymore. They happen so frequently and they're reported on so much that people get desensitized to the nature of them. Yeah, and the extreme brutality of this attack, it, it, it's right out of the gate. She turns around and he knocks her out. He punches her in the face, breaks her nose, and blood spills all over the sidewalk. So yeah, that's this isn't just you know, a non-consenting rape. I mean, he is beating this victim, you know, senseless, essentially, dragging her in the house, tying her up, you know, asking what's going on. I thought it was interesting that he gave a little bit more detail, but, you know, I don't know if I hold much credit to that, where he's saying, I need money to go to Bakerfield. Again, from what we know from the first three attacks, he could be he could just be saying that to throw somebody off like the junior prom thing or you know where's the medicine in the refrigerator mhm yeah and that's exactly what he's doing here it's not a secret especially if you know this this case he will throw lines out there to throw people off constantly he doesn't want them to know what he's doing so he starts giving them misguided information on purpose in order to try and throw detectives off as they come and investigate you know, they start asking the witness, the victims questions and, you know, they'll say, you know, oh, he said he was going to Bakersfield. And it's like, well, yeah, that's what he said, but most likely he's not. Most likely he's going back home, which is probably a few blocks away from where he's at, in all honesty. You know, so that's what's fascinating to me is how he is smart enough to, in the moment, sit there and come up with these crazy things and plant this evidence. Like, he's clearly on top of his game during this. He's like mentally aware of what's going on. It's not like he's blacking out. He's fully thought out, fully planned. I mean, obviously, 
in this attack, it's kind of a spontaneous attack, if you will. He was probably out prowling that neighborhood and saw this woman and decided that he was going to attack her. He probably had an idea that nobody was home, but wasn't 100% sure, and didn't know when people were coming back, and just spur of the moment attacked her. What did you think about him tying her up on the patio in the back when he left? I thought that was strange. I did think that was strange as well, why, why he would have tied her up outside. I'm glad you said that, because the one interesting thing to tying her up was the detective's are starting to notice a pattern with how he's tying victims up. So they're, they're continuing to build their profile. They, they said they noticed the diamond knot, something that is not very common, what they described as what a nautical knot. So are they thinking this guy is prior military, could possibly prior Navy? Yeah, who knows? Or he's just, you know, in the boating community. I mean, it could go either way, but... Yeah, and the other interesting aspect of this is there's a canal system that runs behind a lot of these houses, and... What I mean by that is there's this concrete canal and it's, you know, like almost like I think of it as a half pipe, you know, for from skateboarding, you know, how it's high on one side, it comes down and then you have the flat in the middle and then it goes up high on the other side. And so there's this canal system where somebody can jump into this canal area and it's not like full of water or anything like super high of water, but, you know, you could walk the canal area and then you can jump out in other areas of the development. So you could plan your escape route where you can jump down this canal, not really leave any footprints, get out and go somewhere else and then be off and on your way somewhere else right after. So there's an intricate little area where he can get out and escape with relative ease. And it's it, that's quite fascinating to me that he has the ability to escape like that. You know, he picks and chooses houses where his escape, he, he thinks about this a lot. You know what I mean? Like that planning and preparation is no joke to him. He's out there scouting how he's going to do this and how he's going to get away. Yeah, he's definitely doing his homework. That's for sure. I'm glad this canal piece came up because, you know, I, I know exactly what you're trying to describe. It's just a big concrete walls on two sides. There might be a little bit of water running down the middle to, you know, to catch any runoff in the neighborhood, you know, to keep houses from flooding or whatever. Yep. If there was a major rain, but. Like you said, if he can get to that quickly, any evidence of footprints or anything like that disappear once he's on the concrete. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, good luck figuring out where he went from there. So let's move on to attack number five. September 20th, 1976, 29-year-old Jane Carson reported a break-in at her home. She noticed that there was mud under the window of her three-year-old son's bedroom, which overlooks the backyard. She checked her home for missing valuables, but was surprised that the only thing that she noticed missing was costume jewelry, even though more expensive jewelry was right next to it. She thought maybe she misplaced the jewelry at first, but when looking through other drawers, it appeared that someone else had carefully gone through her drawers. Officers looked in the backyard and noticed footprints in the mud, as well as pry marks on the screen and the window lock. They noticed a blue sock in the backyard, which belonged to her husband. This let them know for sure that someone had gone through their belongings. The theory police arrived at was that it was a kid in the neighborhood who used the sock as a glove to try and avoid leaving fingerprints, and since nothing of value was taken, it seemed like a reasonable idea. After questioning the victim, she admitting to receiving a hang-up phone calls for about two weeks already. There was someone on the other end of the line, but would not speak. They would then hang up. The victim's husband was a captain in the Air Force, and she was in the reserves, stationed at Travis Air Force Base, which is a far commute from their home. On October 3, 1976, the victim received the final hang-up call and began screaming at the person on the other end. Finally, the caller spoke. I'm going to kill you and your husband. She immediately hung up, checked her locks, and called her husband. 
He was not available, so she called police. There wasn't much police could do. On Tuesday, October 5th, Jane's husband left for work around 6.30 a.m. as usual, while still in bed with her three-year-old who had just joined her in her bed. She heard her husband leave the house. Moments later, she could hear a strange clicking sound, and suddenly she heard thumping down the hallway. Appearing in her bedroom was a masked man. The mask, again, only had slits cut out for the eyes. A knife was raised over his head as he stepped toward her. She pulled her son close to her, and she was so scared she couldn't even let out a scream. Please don't hurt us, she repeated. I'll tell you where my money is. Just take it and leave. Shut up, the intruder growled. He repeated himself a few times, and she finally grew quiet. The masked intruder put the knife to her throat and pushed it in and out slightly. He did not draw blood. He warned her that if she did not do what he wanted, he would kill them both. As before, he only said he wanted money. The victim then heard him tearing clothes and sheets in the room. He left the room and wandered around the house. He punctuated his roaming by coming back to the bedroom and checking on her. Before his final return, she heard him move a chair by the front door. Finally, he returned, said he had the money, and was going to leave. The ruse was intentional. She relaxed a bit. It was silent now. Then, she stiffened with fear. Towels were being torn near her bed. The assailant had been standing there quietly and was now tearing both towels into strips. The assailant then put his penis in her hands and told her, play with it. She attempted to do so, but complained that her hands were tied too tightly. Shut up, he snapped instead. He untied her feet and then raped her. He complimented her on her body and said how he liked it. He made definite references as if he knew her and her husband. He said that she was attractive, and when he saw her at the club implying apparently that he was at the officer's club at the Travis Air Force Base. He also asked her if his penis was like the captain's. After he finished raping her, he placed his penis in her numb hands and told her to play with it again. He now told her he was going to the kitchen to make something for himself. She heard the frying pan was being used. After a while, the house was silent. She waited and listened. Nothing. She got up and made it out the back door and called the neighbor's child for help. Sheriff's detectives discovered that the house had been ransacked. About $160 had been stolen. No more. The rapist had entered through the boy's bedroom window again. He left through the back door. Detectives also noted the presence of white shoelaces amidst the torn towels. They did not belong to the household. The boy had not been harmed. He thought the rapist was a doctor examining his mother. A bloodhound was used in this case. He found the trace of the assailant and followed it to the backyard fence. Sheriffs followed the hound throughout the uncultivated field behind the house, through an orchard being bulldozed for development, and then on to Shatterbrook, a street behind the development. A canvas of the neighborhood uncovered witnesses who had seen a strange man as much as four days before, early in the morning. He drove a dark green car like a Chevy Vega. In one encounter, at 6.15 a.m., a few days prior to the rape, a homeowner on Shatterbrook and Cookson stood on her porch and was surprised to see this man stared back at her from her driveway. After a moment, he got into his Vega and drove off, further underscoring that this person with the Vega may have been the rapist and the fact that the bloodhound vectored, that is, lost ascent at that area where the Vega was said to have been parked. An oil spot marked where the car had been parked. The very morning of the attack at 7 a.m., a witness had came out of the house and noticed the Vega parked in the same spot. It was gone by 8.30 a.m. The victim recalled that the rapist wore a khaki mask with only eye holes. He also wore a jacket, but she could not remember the color. She did not remember anything else. 
Judging by his figure in the doorway, she estimated he was about five foot nine. He was lean, he had a small penis, he spoke through clenched teeth in an angry, threatening whisper. One other thing is noteworthy. The bloodhound shook and slobbered and went to pieces when finding the miscreant's scent. This indicated to the handler the miscreant had a disease or was a heavy-duty drug offender. His chemistry being so changed that the dog could detect it was different from a normal human scent. Well, this attack is really terrifying, considering there's a three-year-old in the room the entire time. I believe the three-year-old is moved at some point during the attack, and Jane reaches for him and can't feel him, so she starts freaking out because she doesn't know where he is. But at the end, when all's done, he returns the kid and puts him right back next to her. Well, I, that's well, that's definitely a good thing. I, I can't say good by him because of what he's done to this point, but, you know, thank goodness he didn't hurt the child, obviously. Yeah, no kidding. It's crazy some of the details that have emerged in this, this attack that we just discussed where neighbors describe the car, so they're starting to get more details about this guy's pattern, where he's parking, how far from the victim's house, what he's driving, things like that. What do you think about the bloodhound going crazy about his scent? It, what's definitely interesting, I I didn't know that a, a bloodhound could detect the use of drugs or something of along the lines of a sickness or a disease on a person's body. I, I know that there's drug dogs out there that can can detect drugs on a person, you know, if, obviously if it's in their pocket or on them person somewhere, but the fact that they may be a habitual drug user, I didn't know that they could, they could get pointers from that side. Yeah, I didn't either. I have a theory about this, but I don't really want to talk about it until after we really uncover the entire case. So hopefully I remember to go back to this, but there's something I'm thinking about right now that I don't want to give away later for those of you who haven't heard the entire thing. So uh, I have a theory about why this dog went completely nuts. Yeah, this attack's crazy, and I believe Jane covers this several times um, in interviews, so I want to play that interview now. October 5th, 1976. It was about 6.30 in the morning. I heard the garage door close, and I knew my husband had just left for work. Prior to that, my three-year-old son hopped in bed with me for a snuggle. Within one to two minutes, I saw a flashlight shining down the hall, and I thought, now that's odd. And I screamed out to my husband, what have you forgotten? And there was no answer. And the next thing I knew, I looked up and there was a man shining this flashlight in my eyes with um, a ski mask on, holding a large butcher knife. He told us with clenched teeth, shut up or I'll kill you. Shut up or I'll kill you. If he said that once, he must have said it 10 times with clenched teeth, like he was trying to describe to um, you know, hide his voice. He um, gags us, both of us. He blindfolds us and he ties us up. He moved my son. I had no idea where he had put him. Did he put him on the floor? Did he move him into another bedroom? I had, I had no idea. So my heart was pounding through my chest and I just prayed, dear Lord, please, please let my son be safe. And um, I'll tell you about the rape, but I'll, there wasn't much to tell because I wasn't paying attention to the rape. I was paying attention to what had he done with my son. After the rape was over, praise the Lord, he moved my son back next to me. I could feel his body, and then I was relieved. And then he said, don't move or I'll come back and kill you. He spent a lot of time back and forth in the kitchen rattling the pots and pans. 
Then after a little while, I didn't hear him. And again, we're still blindfolded and tied and gagged. And uh, I was able to get my blindfold down a little bit and I could see that it was getting light out. And I thought, we've got to get out of here. And when I got my blindfold down, would you believe that my three-year-old was asleep? So we hobbled around to the front fence, opened it up, the, the gate, and screamed for a neighbor who came to uh, take us into our home. She called my husband, she called the police. It's been 42 years, and no, um, I, I carried a backpack of feelings of revenge, of hate, of course of guilt, of shame, of anger, for a long time, but I no longer carry that. So there you had Jane talking about her experience with the East Area Rapist and giving her account of the details. So that being said, um, just wanted to say thanks for listening and please go out and hit us up on iTunes, give us a rating, and we'll see you next week for part three of the Golden State Killer East Area Rapist. Stay safe. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.